Then let's uh, find Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read from verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, It's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't then depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We'll leave it there. We saw last time we were looking in this chapter how Paul at the start in the first few verses expresses his passionate praying for his, it says his brothers according to, his, according to the flesh. Those who are part of his own race, the Jews, he is passionately concerned for them and he even says he would be willing, if it were possible, to sacrifice his own relationship with God to be cut off from Christ if it would somehow benefit the people of his own race. And then he goes on to speak about those people. Now, it's in the context of the previous chapter where we've seen wonderful assurances of our security in Christ, our salvation in Christ, that nothing, nothing can separate us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has been speaking there about some of the... the, big problems that we can go through, persecution, suffering, or whatever. But he says, whatever we're going through, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. He speaks about God's eternal purpose, wonderful security. Then that gives rise to some questions, or it gives rise to a problem, and that's the problem that Paul is addressing here in chapter 9. If 
Having received such promises, we say we are safe forever. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Well, what about Israel? What about the Jews? Because didn't they historically have pretty strong promises? Didn't they have assurances from God about their relationship with him and their future with him? Well, how does that work out? Because look at them now. Paul is saying, and he he says it again in chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. In other words, they're not saved. They had all of those promises, but something seems to have gone wrong. They seem to have somehow missed it. And so we read Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 21, it's recorded, Matthew 21 and verse 43, speaking to the Jews, he says, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Great promises, but they seem to have lost it. So, gives rise to some questions. Had they, as it were, lost their salvation? Or has God broken his promise? Or did God mean it when he promised it, but he was somehow unable to fulfill it? For example, if I, for example, said to Al, Al, I'm going to give you a new car. He would be excited, right? Because he knows my taste in cars. He would be excited. I promise I'm going to give him a car. And then time goes by and nothing happens. Now, he can conclude either I haven't kept my word or I really meant it when I said it, but when it came to it, for whatever reason, I couldn't come up with it, couldn't afford it. Or thirdly, that I meant it when I said it and I would have done it, but something's gone wrong. He's offended me in some way between the promise and its fulfillment, and so I really meant it, but now he's lost it, as I have just lost that. For those listening, I think, what was that about? Well, you should have been here. (laughs) So, a promise, and a promise that's not fulfilled. What conclusion do we draw? Promises were given to Israel, but not fulfilled. What do we conclude? God breaks his word, God means it, but somehow he's lacking in power and he can't bring it through. Or that between the promise and its uh, promise fulfillment, we can lose it. And if any of those three things are true, we have no security. We cannot be sure. We cannot be sure that we'll ever be with God in heaven. The promises are there. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And those on those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Well, maybe. Maybe. We can't be sure it's actually going to happen. Perhaps. What's the answer to this? Paul has spoken about our confidence and our position. And he says, but what about Israel? Gives rise to some questions. Well, he goes on to speak about their privileged position. And he speaks of all that they had. He gives nine reasons, indeed, why they could have considered themselves really safe. (laughs) 
I have come to the conclusion that my ears are the wrong shape for modern technology. <laughs> you need a particular shape of ear that holds it in position. Anyway, carrying on, I'll maybe speak with one hand up there. Um, he gives nine reasons, then, why they should have considered themselves safe. And those reasons, you'll see it there in verses 4 and 5, are all drawn from Old Testament history, which itself gives rise to a question. Paul is writing to Rome, to Gentiles mainly, though there would have been Jews there. Why does he draw all these examples from the Old Testament when, surely as Gentiles, they're not going to know the Old Testament? Well, wrong. If these people are Christians he will be absolutely sure that they know their history. They might not be Jews, but their history goes back into the Old Testament. There are many Christians, sadly, who say, oh, I I just don't get on with the Old Testament. When I read my Bible, I I read from the New Testament, but the Old Testament, I just don't get it. If you don't read the Old Testament, you don't know where you've come from. And I would suggest if you don't know where you've come from, you can't actually know where you're going. If you're trying to walk in a straight line from A to B, maybe over uh, not, not, not a level surface, you can't, you know, you, it's, it's a difficult terrain. If you're trying to walk in a straight line, surely you have to keep looking back to see where you've come from to make sure you're still in line to head on. Unless you're lined up with where you have been, You can't be sure you'll make it in a straight line to where you should go. If you don't read the Old Testament, then you can't know where you've come from. You can't know what God has done, and you can't ever understand where you're supposed to be going. In fact, you'll be like sadly many Christians are, just kind of individuals with a personal relationship with God, very little sense of church, very little sense of purpose, maybe just going around in kind of circles. Because they haven't got a perspective. They don't know where they have come from. We need to understand the Old Testament to see God's promises. So he speaks here of nine things that they they had in their history that should have assured them of a safe uh, position. First, he says in verse 4 in the NIV, says the people of Israel, or a better translation, they are Israelites. Up to now, in previous chapters, he has referred to them as the Jews. Why does he suddenly call them Israelites? Well, to make this point, they are descendants of Israel. Israel, Jacob, the man who wrestled with God, if you know the story, he wrestled with God. He he wouldn't let go unless God blessed him and God changed his name. Your name was Jacob, meaning deceiver. Now, Israel, one who struggles with God and prevails. And They are descendants of the one who struggled with God, the one who had promises from God. They are Israelites. He says, uh, secondly, they have the adoption. Israel became, uh, the nation became God's collective son. Remember the story when Moses goes to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4? And verse 22, he says to, uh, God says, tells him to say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go. In chapter 8 here in Romans, Paul has been speaking about our adoption as sons. He says, well, Israel had that. They were God's adopted son. 
And then he goes on to say that they're, they're, they're Israelites, they have the adoption, they have the glory, God's divine glory, God's visible presence. There are so many examples, just one, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 uh, and verse 10. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. They knew God was with them, not just because they had words, but God's manifest presence, the glory of God. In 2 Chronicles, a more famous reference perhaps to that, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has seen the temple constructed, They've been preparing for a generation for that, the people to worship and prophesy. They're all there, and it says, after Solomon has prayed, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. They had God's visible presence. Israelites, adoption, glory. Then he goes on to say they had the covenants. A covenant normally is when two people agree with each other on something. When God makes a covenant, it's not two people agreeing, it's God declaring it. God's saying just unilaterally, I commit myself to doing this. And God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant... With, with the people at Sinai. There are so many covenants there in Scripture that God's commitment, they had that. Surely they're safe. With all of those privileges, surely they can be confident of their future. He goes on. They had the receiving of the law. At Sinai, the people of Israel in the, in the wilderness, God appears to them and makes known to them his nature what he requires of them, and how they can be a holy people, a, a distinct people, unlike any other nation, unlike any other grouping, God's people standing out on planet earth as the people of God. They had that. They had the worship, or this version says the temple worship. I'm trying to make clear what it means. We're just saying they had the worship. God told them how they could approach him. God allowed them to approach him. God told them how to worship. They knew that. They had that. It's important to know how to worship God. The writer to the Hebrews, having drawn many lessons out of the Old Testament, says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. They knew how to worship. God told them how to worship. They had promises. The Old Testament is full of promises. Right back at the beginning, or towards the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 22, a promise to Abraham, the great hero of faith. In Genesis 22 and verse 18, God says to Abraham, through your offspring... All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. A promise of international influence, 
mission to bless the nations of the world. These people had a sense of destiny. They've got promises from God. They've got the visible presence of God. They know they are together to bless nations. Hey, this, this is where we've come from. Get your bearings. It's not just me and my salvation. We've come into that. That's where we've come from. That's where we're going. To be a people together, knowing the presence of God, knowing how to be a distinct people on the face of the earth, to bless nations. They had all of that. And then he goes on to say, theirs are the patriarchs, or theirs are the fathers. The the fathers of the nation, the heroes of faith, men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Look at the great heroes of the Old Testament. That's their history. It's our history as well. And then finally, culminating and climaxing this whole list, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Messiah, Christ's ancestry, comes through this people. And he's God. What? You couldn't have more cast iron, safe, position than that. That's what they had. Did it all come to nothing? Did it all mean nothing? What, on what basis can we trust God now when they had all of that and it went wrong? Well, Paul raises the problem in order to solve it. He raises the question in order to answer it. And he answers it in a way that is very, very important for us. Because we need to learn from this. And he speaks about three issues. The first of them is the matter of faith. In verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. God didn't, his word didn't fail through him failing to keep his promise or through him being unable to keep, uh, to actually fulfill what he had promised. It's not that he broke his word or couldn't keep it. It's not as though God's word failed. Why? Well, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. What does he mean here? Well, he says Abraham had two sons. One is Isaac, one is Ishmael. Isaac is the the son who was promised through Abraham's wife, Sarah. You know the story. While Abraham is believing God for a son, it seems to be apparent that his wife is not going to produce that son. He's believing God for a son, but he's not believing God for Sarah. And so he has a son through Sarah's handmaid who was not the child of promise. So what Paul is saying here is, there are two descendants of Abraham, but only one is the true one, Isaac. It's the same family, and yet it's not all the family of faith. Isaac is the child of faith. Isaac is the child of promise. Ishmael is the child of the flesh. Yes, Abraham's children, but actually there's one, only one line that are the people of faith. Equally family, equally descended, 
but not equally children of the promise. And then he, secondly, he speaks about the matter of God's choice in verses 10 through to 13. It's as if he says, well, okay, if you look at Abraham's sons, you can understand why one line would be taken in preference to the other. One line comes from Sarah, one comes from the slave girl. Yes, it's understandable why the one line it takes precedence over the other. But what about Rebecca's children? Remember the story, Rebecca is the wife of Isaac, and she is pregnant with twins. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Or it could be translated, Rebecca's children had one and the same conception, or one and the same pregnancy. With Abraham's children, two different mothers, but not these two, Not only the same mother and the same father, but the same conception and the same pregnancy. You can't say one is better than the other. You can understand why Isaac's better than Ishmael, but these two? And yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose one of them. Why is Jacob preferred to Esau? The answer is simply nothing to do with who their mother was, nothing to do with anything natural, but simply to do with God's right to choose because he is God. Because he is God, he is free to choose who he wants to choose. And he chose Jacob. So again, the family has got two sons, but one is chosen. But naturally, they're part of the same family group, but spiritually not, because of God's choice. And the third issue that he raises is the matter of God's mercy which arises out of what he's just said, because a natural reaction to what he's just said is there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? The protest, it's not fair. It's not fair. Two children, one pregnancy, the older surely should take precedence, if, any of, if either is going to, but the younger takes precedence. That's not fair. Well, is God unjust? Not at all. Never let it be. We don't respond like that. Why? Well, because God is God, and it's all mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You see, none of us deserves relationship with God. If we were all equally deserving, you know, when you want to, if you're working with children, you say, now I want two or three of you to come and help, help me. And they all put their hands up, choose me, choose me. And when you look at them, they're all equally deserving, hopefully. They're all good children. Choose me, choose me. But you, you have to make a choice. And it's not a matter of no one, you know, they're all good. But in this case, in this case, we are all equally undeserving. We have no right to say, choose me. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath of God. We have sinned. 
We deserve to be banished from God's presence. If God has mercy on just one, that's amazing mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. If God sovereignly chooses to have mercy on anyone, that's amazing and is worthy of worship forever. It's not a matter of fairness. It's amazing that God should have mercy on anyone, and he does. He is free to show mercy where he will, to have compassion where he will. But then what does it go on to say? Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's referring there to Pharaoh. God says of Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Remember the story, Pharaoh stubbornly refused to submit to God. He has any number of choices. Remember all the plagues that came on Egypt to bend his will, but he would not bend his will. He stubbornly rejected. And the apparent reason for that rejection is, God had hardened his heart. Well, no, actually, if you read the Old Testament, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So what do we see? What we see surely is this. When someone hardens their heart against God, the terrifying outcome can be that God says, okay, let your heart be hard. And it becomes now God's decree. What a terrifying thought that we could stubbornly resist God, and God then says, okay, resist. That God actually condemns us to our choice. Terrible prospect. That's what happened to Pharaoh. He would not yield. God hardened his heart, and he couldn't yield. His choice. But God is free. God is free to show mercy where he will. Now, what we see then, is that in this nation of the Jews or the Israelites, they are ethnically one people. They have the same history, the same background. Oh, but they haven't. There's actually two lines in this group. There are those who are genuine, and there are those who are simply part of the group. So... It says there in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Ethnically they are, but in terms of relationship with God, they are not. Indistinguishable to the human eye, but God knows those who are his. There are those who are faith, and there are those who are simply part of the group. And so has God's word failed? No, 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 no. God keeps his word to those who are the authentic recipients of his word. The others are just part of the group, and none of it applies to them. And so earlier, also in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 28, Paul had said there, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It's not a matter of cutting the body. It's a matter of your heart being cut. It's the covenant in your heart. It's relationship with God. Yes, they were all ethnically the one race, but spiritually there were those who were of God and those who were not. 
So what's the lesson for us? Well, that's our background. Because these are our fathers. We've come that line. We look back and we see what's happened and we say, hey, that sets the direction. We've got to stay on course here. What course then does it set for us? Well, we need to see that we, as with Israel, are God's covenant people. In fact, Peter puts it very dramatically in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, You, talking to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That was Israel's history. That was their destiny, to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God for the sake of the nations, to declare God's praises, to let people know there is a God in Israel so that people could come and know him for themselves. That was their destiny. They failed. And Peter says to the church, now it applies to you. We've come into that It's not that they all failed, of course. That was the faithful line. We have come into it, so we need to learn some lessons. Not all that calls itself church is church. There is the apparent and the real. Same as not all that called itself Israel was Israel. And so the tragedy... Israel's promise, their Messiah comes amongst them. And do they welcome him with open arms? They shout, crucify him. They've got the promises. And now the one they've longed for, the desire of, 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 of the, the ages, the desire of nations has come. They don't recognize him. They're not true Israel. They're not the people of faith. There were people of faith. Remember those who came when Jesus was a baby. They saw him in the temple and they said, Lord, let let your servant now depart in peace. I've seen your salvation. There were people of faith, but there were also people ethnically part of the group, not really part of the group. Not all that calls itself church is church. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian belongs to Christ. Not everyone who is baptized as a believer is really belonging to God. And certainly, not everyone, dare I say this, not everyone who is a church member is really a member of the church. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of commitment to Christ, to his vision, to his people. There's the nominal and there's the real. God keeps his promise. He's not unreliable. He's not unfaithful. He keeps his promise. But we need to understand his promises are are to particular people. They misunderstood it. They thought it was to the nation and they were safe. It didn't matter what they did. They had the the glory, they had the promises, they had the law. They were distinct people, but they weren't distinct. They just compromised. They thought they were safe. Read the Old Testament. You see the shock of when they went into exile. They thought, that can't happen to us. We've got the temple. We're safe. God is here. 
won't happen to us. Oh, it happened. They didn't hear God, although they heard so much. Hearing, you're not hearing. Hearing the words, hearing nothing. Hey, there's some things we need to take heed of. God is faithful. God is wonderfully faithful. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those God foreknew, those God had relationship with beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Have we joined the group or have we joined Christ? Are we part of the circle or are we truly belonging? It's those who are called according to his purpose. Is there evidence of genuine repentance, faith, discipleship, obedience, belonging. They just thought they were safe. They didn't ask some important questions. And could end up saying, you can't trust God. Oh, you can trust God. Hey, but what about us? What about us? Can you lose your salvation? No, but did you ever have it? That's the issue that many of them didn't have it. They thought they did. Part of the group have got to be all right. Hey, it's dangerous. What's the evidence? Are we just part of the circle or belonging to Christ? Israel heard. They heard so much. Read all that the prophets said. Read the Old Testament. They heard the word of God, and yet they failed to hear. In the book of Hebrews, again, it says, time and again, it says, Take, don't harden your hearts. Hold on to what you've heard. You know, as I've been in this this week, uh, recent days, just looking at it and applying it to myself, I realize I'm only likely to hear what I'm willing to hear. And if I don't want to hear it, the awful possibility is that I won't hear it. The words are going out, but I'm not hearing it if I don't want to. If it's going to challenge something that I'm doing, if it's going to challenge something that I like, if it's going to challenge a cherished belief, I'm unlikely to hear it. The words will be there, but I won't hear it. Be careful how you hear, the Bible says. Think of all that Israel heard. Look at that list again. The Israelites, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the line that leads to Christ and lost. It's dreadful. There's bound to be, at the end, people who have been part of the church, the visible church, who will discover to their horror at the end they never belonged. Hey, I don't like preaching things like this, but I've been preaching it to myself this week. It's time, it's appropriate sometimes. Just stop and say, what's the evidence? What's the evidence that I've repented? 
How vulnerable is my heart? How sensitive am I to God's word where I say yes when it challenges something that I love, something that I cherish? It challenges my pride. Oh, pride. Pharaoh wouldn't yield. Well, then God was not going to bend him. Do you depend on God bending your will? Or are you prepared to bend it yourself? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't ask God to humble you. He says, do it yourself. (laughs) Because he looks for sensitive hearts. We need to pursue God. We need to believe him. To receive his word. To produce the evidence this is real I'm not just a hanger on I'm not just within the orbit of the church it's not just I've got my name in the membership list but it's real there's real evidence that I belong there's real evidence that I'm committed there's real evidence that I understand my history that God wants a people not just individuals, a people that was the promise We'll come into that. Yeah, I'm part of that people. And I'm part of that people to bless the nations. There's a mission. We're in it together to win the world. There's evidence that I believe that. There's evidence my life has changed. God's faithful. God is wonderfully faithful. And those who truly belong to him are safe forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's wonderfully true. Then he goes straight on to issue some warnings. Hey, we need to rejoice in the truth and heed the warnings. Let's pray.